The following program was previously recorded. We regret we'll be unable to accept your phone calls, but we invite you to participate during the next live broadcast of this program. The following is a CNY Talk Radio presentation. This is Taps Para Magazine Radio. Taps Para Magazine Radio. Here are your hosts, J.V. Johnson and Aaron Sagers. Welcome back to the program, Taps Para Magazine Radio, your weekly broadcast into things unknown, brought to you by the Atlantic Paranormal Society, Taps Para Magazine, and the Leatherstocking Media Group, and heard exclusively on the CNY Talk Radio Network. I'm JV. We've got Aaron Sagers and our special guest host as well, Stacy Jones, uh, in the middle of a terrific discussion with the writer, director, and producer of Eyes of the Mothman, uh, Matt Pulowski. Matt, and before we went to the news break, we were just kind of laying the groundwork uh, for uh, the chronology here of the Mothman um, story and related stories. We were talking about the TNT factory and, and the possible environmental com- contamination that I guess was determined or, or confirmed, I guess, uh, in the 80s. They did an environmental study to confirm that the area was quite polluted. Yeah, in the late 80s, the uh, EPA kind of came in and did a lot of tests. I believe it originated from uh, there was a fisherman who had discovered... Some, some red water, some, uh, I think, you know, they kept referring it to as like a Kool-Aid spill, the uh, people I spoke to, and I guess it's literally just, it's water that's red, and, and it's obviously signs of contamination. Uh, again, just obviously not the most direct connection, but it's just another little weird thing, you know, red water, red eyes of the moth, yeah. all these little weird things that keep coming up, you know, there was in pond, uh, there, there are certain ponds out there that were manufactured, that were man-made ponds, and they all had numbers, you know, and it was pond 13 that was contaminated. You know, obviously 13 uh, usually uh, associated with as an unlucky number. Um, there's another correlation of 13 in Mothman story. I can't remember exactly what it is, but, you know, these, a lot of these little things that keep coming up, you know, numbers, symbols, and it's why, again, a lot of these people have drawn these stories together, uh, TNT plant foreign stock. So there are dates with 13 in it that, that are important to, to Point Pleasant. So it's uh, a lot of strange things that have happened. And, you know, the TNT plant is definitely part of the Mothman story for a lot of reasons. Let's take a step forward now. So uh, November 12, 1966, from what I, what I remember of the documentary, was the first um, sighting of not necessarily the Mothman, but but some grave diggers saw a flying man a little bit a little ways away from Point Pleasant, actually. Yes, I mean, you know, the most kind of uh, a lot of people uh, who know the Mothman know the book, uh, and they start kind of the first sighting with Linda Scarberry, which is the uh, incident that, that took place in Point Pleasant at the TNT plant. What people don't realize is there are some sightings and incidents that happened before that, um, which you know, in my um, my opinion. It just helps kind of substantiate these stories a little more, you know, because a lot of people say, you know, there are some people that will tell you that the Linda Scarberry sighting was a hoax, that that was, uh, you know, put together and perpetuated by locals. But, you know, you have these sightings and incidents that happened days before, so it helps kind of squash those uh, theories, I think. Um, you know, there's not much known about some of the earlier sightings, but there, there were reports that people digging graves at night uh, witnessed a person with wings fly over them, uh, which, you know, obviously not normal in most towns. Um, and then you have, uh, before the Linda Scarberry as well, you have what I think is one of the more uh, important and 
crucial eyewitnesses, which is Merle Partridge. Uh, Merle Partridge is a guy who had some unusual incidents take place on his farm. Um, he was an ex-military guy, uh, used to be in the Navy. Uh, one of his uh, jobs in the Navy, if I remember correctly, I don't think this made it into the documentary, but just in, in, in knowing Merle and, and interviewing him, you know, he used to spot aircraft. Uh, his job in the Navy was to land aircraft. And you know, so for him, identifying lights on a plane, indicators on a plane and transponders, knowing what kind of aircraft they are by the naked eye was part of his job uh, duties while in the military. So, you know, Merle's case is very uh, important, I think, because a, a good uh, – w- one of the aspects of his story is that he's not only spotted, you know, something kind of unusual, possibly a creature, but he saw some strange aircraft uh, over his house that he could not identify. There was a, you know, he explained this being a bunch of red lights that kind of rotated around, and, you know, it was, uh, he was not sure if it was craft or if it was some type of being, but, you know, Merle Partridge, uh, probably the second person, I believe, in the order of the uh, sightings that began out there in Point Pleasant. So on November 12th of 66, uh, some grave diggers spot a man, at least they perceived to be a flying man, overhead. The next day, or next evening, Merle Partridge has his experience around, I guess it was 11 o'clock in the evening, he hears some noises, his TV set gives him trouble, he, he and his dog go outside and the dog disappears without a trace. That's right. Yeah, there's you know there are electronic disturbances. Um, TV basically, uh, as he explained it to me, just exploded. I mean, and, and Merle was a very sharp guy. Um, you know, obviously when I interviewed him, it was years after these uh, things happened. But he even remembered you know some of the, the things he was watching that night. What was on TV? He was very sharp. He was very astute. And like I said, he's was kind of for me one of the more crucial witnesses because he's very sincere. He just you know just seemed to really remember these things and have a clear memory, even though it's been years later. So uh, his TV explodes, all these strange kind of electronic disturbances happen in his house, hears weird noises outside, he grabs uh, his gun that he usually keeps at the foot of his door, his dog goes crazy, disappears out into a field, chases a bunch of weird red lights, and he never sees his dog again. Uh, And that becomes an important part later because uh, the Linda Scarberry uh, sighting that happens days later uh, one of the things that they report is seeing a dead dog on the side of the road shortly after they see the Mothman, and there's a lot of people that think that the dog was taken, eaten, killed by this creature. So if, if we had to categorize Merle's experience, he didn't see a winged man or, or, or necessarily a creature. He saw the lights, he heard the noises. A couple days later, he sees an object in the sky overhead of him during the day, I believe. Yeah, Merle's kind of quick to not have his story confused of what he saw. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been a lot of, uh, I think, misrepresentation of, of Merle's story. I mean, half the time, people don't even get his name right. He was very annoyed at that to where, you know, I guess the investigators uh, back then had even, you know, we, we kept calling him Newell Partridge, and there's all these people who don't understand who Newell Partridge is versus Merle <laughs> Partridge. It's the same guy, uh, you know, but his name is Merle. How people misunderstood uh, that, I mean, it could, maybe it was the West Virginia accent or something, I don't know. But, uh, yes, he, he was very kind of quick to explain, you know, that what he saw, he really couldn't put words to. It wasn't like I saw a creature. I saw, it was something that just was, was undescribable to him. I mean, it was lights. There were, there were orbs. There were red. They were rotating. But for him, it was difficult to understand what it was. Um, but to me, that's even more important. So I think a lot of people are quick to say, oh, I saw a spaceship. Oh, I saw a monster. 
you know, he recognized what he saw was uh, something very unusual, and that was not kind of uh, earthly, I guess you could say, but he was also quick to kind of not give it a label or identify it. Well, um, we... And then he does see it, yeah, he did see it, but he did definitely see a daytime craft um, days later uh, at his house. He's in a swimming pool with his family. His entire family witnesses it, a gigantic gray craft on a slowly hovers by his swimming pool several days later. When we come back, we'll get into the, discussing the actual, the, 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 what would be considered the uh, breaking point in the story, I would say, the, the, the eyewitness, uh, the, the two couples that, that actually have an opportunity to describe the Mothman for the first time. We'll, we'll have that discussion when we come back. You're listening to TAPS Paramagazine Radio on CNY Talk Radio. CNY Talk Radio. Taps Paramagazine Radio. Taps Paramagazine Radio. I'm your host, JV, with Aaron Sagers and our guest host, Stacey Jones. Taps Paramagazine, by the way, available online uh, for uh, more information or subscription information. You can check us out, www.tapsparamag.com. Our email address for the program is radio at tapsparamag.com. That's radio at tapsparamag.com. We continue our discussion today, a really fascinating discussion regarding uh, the new documentary, Eyes of the Mothman. We have writer, producer, and director Matt Pulowski on the phone. Matt, we were talking about you know, the introduction of the, of the eyewitness accounts, and really the pivotal encounter uh, occurred on November fifteenth, 1966. Two couples out near the TNT factory in a car witness what? Well, what they witness is a creature with red eyes uh, and feathers. They, uh, you know, what was reported is when they first saw it, they thought it was a man standing in the road. They, you know, the, the TNT area is very dark and desolate at that time. You know, not a lot of street lights or street lamps. It's, it's a very remote area at this time. It's abandoned. You know, it's basically during this time period a place where young teenagers go to, to make out. It's kind of a lover's lane. And there are these two couples, uh, Steve and Mary Mallett and Roger, Roger and Linda Scarberry, who are kind of out there one night. You know, it wasn't un- uncommon for people to be out there. It was kind of your local hangout place, you know, abandoned buildings, empty roads. And these people witness, again, what they think is a man, about six foot standing in the road. But as they get closer to it, they realize that it's basically the figure of a man, but there's no head on the body. There's just two red orbs that kind of sit there, uh, gigantic kind of red eyes. And as they get closer, this thing shoots straight up into the air uh, and, and flies. And obviously, it, it scares the, the living hell out of them. And as they are flying out of there to get back to the main street in town, this thing actually flies over top of their car and chases them and terrorizes them um, for miles. Uh, and eventually flies away. These couples see the thing again sitting on a billboard and finally kind of escape uh, out of the TNT plant, uh, get into town, and immediately report their story to the local sheriff. Now, the sheriff uh, separates the four individuals, puts them in different rooms, and asks them each for an account of what happened. And the, you know, the, the, the fact is the accounts matched. Yes, it was a pretty um, thorough investigation. They are all isolated. Uh, because of the nature of the story, I'm guessing, it's very strange and unusual. Uh, but their stories match. Uh, deputies are sent back to the, to the site of, of the events uh, that night. 
and uh, the deputies experience strange noises and disturbances on the radios, um, and uh, that's where this really kind of becomes a mainstream story. Um, days later, you know, the news picks it up, and there's uh, worldwide uh, media coverage, and uh, this thing really kind of blows up, and there's a media storm kind of on Point Pleasant about this creature that's seen with red eyes, and it just starts to grow from there. More people start to see it, more reports come in, you know, it becomes more serious, uh, for sure. But, Matt, why was this just not put to bed and discarded by the police? I mean, the fact is, is they bring kids in and, you know, kids sometimes pull pranks or whatever. You know, why why actually go out to the TNT factory? Why, you know, pursue it at all? Yeah, that's a good point. You know, and I think um, what's important to understand uh, about this town and just about West Virginia, even today, I mean, obviously I can't speak for back then. I wasn't there. But my experience is, Today in West Virginia, it's, it's probably the most sincere, down-to-earth people I've ever met. I mean, there are people I've met in West Virginia that I've known for less than a year that I would probably trust more than someone I've known here in New York for 10 years. I mean, it's just the, the kind of people that are out there, they're, they're very genuine, they're very sincere, they have just no reason to make stuff up or lie. They just, they really, you really kind of get that impression from being out there. And I would have to assume that that's probably something that's been a staple of their community for a long time. And uh, I, I think also, you know, from what I've read or investigated with the police reports and what I've heard is that, that when these kids came in, they were terrorized. They were, they, were, they, were, they were frantic, that the fear was very genuine, and that they took them very serious just because it just they didn't seem that they were pulling a prank, you know. They weren't professional actors or anything. These guys were legitimately terrified, and the police took their story very serious. Okay, but you, I mean, uh, you live in New York City, I understand, and, um, you know, as a filmmaker, you go into town, and you're looking for a story, but you have to remain objective. So, I don't know, as you're hearing some of these tales... You know, do you do you ever think, uh, all right, uh, I, I don't know if I'm buying into this or how much should I be buying into that? So how do you maintain your objectivity while also getting the story? You know, it, it was an interesting experience for me because I, uh, I went out there kind of looking for the truth. I think probably anyone who investigates this story is like, all right, I'm going to be the one to break the case. I'm going to solve the mystery. I'm going to figure out what this is, whether it's a hoax, real or not. And then you kind of get out there. And this thing is so involved, and there's so many, you know, it's exhausting. There's so many details. You start to realize, like, okay, uh, no one's solving this thing. The best I can do is maybe at least to you know, investigate every avenue. So that's kind of where we went with it. And then but what would happen is there were times where I did get kind of dejected where, you know, you want, I think anyone wants this to be something fascinating and interesting, you know, but at the same time you still need to be grounded in that, okay, maybe it was a hoax. You know, I remember the first, con- the first time I kind of was a little disappointed where someone said, uh, oh, you know, you're here to do a story in the Mothman. They were like, you know, wasn't that, you know, Bob Smith's cousin in the, in the costume? And then they find the costume back in the 70s or something. You know, just kind of totally crushed all hope of this being a legitimate thing. And I remember, you know, having that be a little uh, upsetting. But then what would happen is you talk to somebody else, and they say, well, wasn't that Steve who did the hoax and he had the costume 
you know, and you start to realize that, like, everyone's got their own little Mothman story. Like, everyone wants it to be their cousin's friend who did the hoax or who did this. You start to realize that even that, you know, has become a myth of its own. So it kind of regrounds it in the fact that, you know, everything you're hearing you got to take with a grain of salt, whether it's someone disproving the story or someone trying to convince you. I think from the convincing side, you know, there are people I talk to that saw this thing that basically would cry, that would break down. I mean, they, there's a lot of people that I interviewed that would not, that uh, later on did not want, allow me to put them on camera. Like, they didn't make the final film because they weren't comfortable with it because they're worried that if they talk about it, it will come back. So those are the people for me that I would say are the most kind of convincing that, you know, I don't know what happened out there. I don't know what it was. I can't put a label on it, but I know that they took it very seriously. So, you know, to kind of relate to that way, if these kids came into the sheriff and if they had the same kind of fear and sincerity that some of the eyewitnesses that I spoke to with, you know, I can see how someone could take them very seriously because I did. You know, I mean, I did. It's hard not to when someone's there trembling and crying, kind of retelling their story for you about a creature, and it's hard to not believe them because, you know, I'm a very big believer in, you know, reading somebody. You know, again, being from New York, I do a lot of different deals here for the, the business I'm in. And usually within the first five minutes, you can tell if someone is honest or if someone is full of it. And I think that's important here. I, I do. I, even though it's, it's a very simple kind of tactic of, you know, determining validity, I think it's important with a story like this because the eyewitness testimony is really all you have to go on. There's no photos. There's not a lot of evidence. That's really the only evidence you have to work with. The film is Eyes of the Mothman. Our guest is Matt Palowski, writer, producer, and director. And, and Matt, I was going to reference that. Being from New York, you, you have a healthy dose of New York skepticism. And, you know, we've been talking about the eyes of the Mothman. What about the eyes of the witnesses? You know, you, as you look into those eyes and they're telling their story, you know, you, you, most people have a pretty good sense of whether there's a, gen, there's a sincerity or a genuineness in, in, in the stories. And you're saying that there, were, there was both of those things. For sure. I mean, this is also not the first, uh, you know, paranormal documentary I've done. You know, I've done other work with, with psychics and other people that, you know, to be honest, within five minutes I'm just going, this, I don't believe a word this person's saying. Uh, it's just, you know, when you're getting cons, every con person usually has the same story. It just it sounds the same, it feels the same, and I feel like if you're a perceptive person, you know, in, in any degree, you know, if you're getting cons, you kind of know what it sounds like, you know what it feels like. But when you're talking to someone who believes in what they're telling you, you know, that usually rings true. And again, like a lot of the people I spoke to who were Mothman witnesses, they weren't sitting there telling me, you know, this thing was definitely from outer space, this thing was definitely this. They never, they never labeled it, they never put a stamp on it. They still, to this day, you know, they're not going to do that to themselves because they don't know what it was. It's confusing, it's strange, it's unusual. What they'll only kind of um, testify to it's just that I witnessed something that I don't know what it was. It was horrific, you know, uh, what, whether it was a monster, an alien, a, a mutated bird. They don't know what it is, and they don't try to tell you what it is. They just, it, it rings true that, you know, they witnessed something they don't understand that is traumatizing, and, and it really, it still brings tears to a lot of people's eyes. There are people that, you know, like I said, I interviewed them, but I couldn't use them in the final product because they were uncomfortable with it because they, a lot of people think that if they talk about it, the thing is going to come back. So um, there's a lot of things that didn't make the film, unfortunately, 
that uh, were important um, in terms of those uh, type of eyewitnesses. So after the after the, uh, the 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 two couples give their account, and then that, subsequent to that, there are many sightings. Um, some of the witnesses actually talked about some physical effects uh, from from the sightings, and uh, there's another very very poignant confrontation between, I believe it was Mrs. Bennett, uh, who stops at a friend's house. She drops her baby, and this this there's there's quite a a bit of fodder here uh, to to lend credence to the sightings. Yeah, I think what you'll find is that a lot of the Mothman sightings, they were not like, you know, a big bird spotted, you know, 10 miles away in the woods, obstructed, you know, that could have been, you know, that could have been uh, a hawk or something misconstrued as the Mothman or a, a crane. You know, these sightings were up close. The sightings were very personal, very face-to-face. There's, you know, a good two to three people that I spoke to, you know, whose sighting was like, you know, this wasn't a minute. This wasn't. This was like a ten-minute event to where this thing was right on top of their car or right outside their window, where they got a good look at it. And even in getting a good look at it, they still have no idea what it was. Um, there is a story of Marcella Bennett who, basically, coming home one night, sees some strange lights in the sky. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I guess, yeah, she's coming home from visiting some friends. Passes the TNT plant, sees some odd red lights in the sky, unidentifiable. Uh, gets out of her car, has a newborn baby, goes to walk to her house, and there's this thing in her yard, this figure, this six-foot entity, scares her so much, she drops her child, uh, and the, the baby, you know, is not harmed or anything, but uh, after going in the house, the, uh, kind of escaping this thing, it, it doesn't fly away or leave. It's there. It's on the porch. It's walking around. You know, they call the police. By the time the police get there, it is gone. But this is, a, you know, an incident that goes on for minutes. You know, it's not just a, a quick flash in a forest or you know, a strange light over a building that people are kind of misidentifying. These were very face-to-face, personal encounters of terror. The film is Eyes of the Mothman. The writer, producer, director is Matt Pulowski, our guest uh, this hour on TAPS Paramagazine Radio. When we come back, we're going to get into the, some of the other components of this story. Uh, UFOs, Men in Black, it goes on and on. Stay with us. You'll get more information when we come back. Taps Paramagazine Radio on CNY Talk Radio. Taps Paramagazine Radio continues on CNY Talk Radio. Welcome back to the program. Our guest is Matt Pulowski, writer, director, producer of the new film documentary, Eyes of the Mothman. Uh, Matt, the the details of the the, uh, sightings of the Mothman are, are... are fascinating to begin with, but there's also many of them, and uh, obviously they're all nicely laid out in the film. But we need to move on a little bit uh, just due to time constraints because the story continues to get more and com- more complex. Uh, part of the of of the documentary and the and the history surrounding all of this is um, UFO sightings, and in particular, discuss the Men in Black correlation and Mary Heyer and her experience during all of this. Yes, there was a uh, kind of a reporter for the local newspaper there named Mary Heyer, and she kind of became very closely involved with all of these incidents. She was a very objective person. Um, you know, from what I understand, not really necessarily even a believer of the paranormal before all these things happened, but just someone who was a very uh, well-respected local townsperson. You know, people would often go to Mary with their personal problems and things like that, even before these incidents happened. You know, she was kind of like the, the town shoulder to lean on 
you know, somebody that you could talk to. Uh, she was very respected journalist. Uh, and, and basically, when the Mothman sightings hit, she kind of was looked at as the person to to keep things kind of together. You know, when all these bizarre, unusual uh, incidents and events were going on, people started to look to Mary to make some sense out of this. You know, to just I guess bring a journalistic or investigative approach and just say, you know, what what is going on here? I mean, I think. Uh, you know, again, what's important to, to note with, with these incidents and with the people that were in this town is that, you know, they never, they never put a label on it. They never said, oh, my God, we're being invaded from aliens. You know, they just, they, it was just always this understanding of what is going on. I mean, it was just the terror and fear of something happening to your community that you don't know what it is because it doesn't really fit to any explainable, uh, explainable uh, reasoning that, that's kind of normal. So... There was a lot of confusion at the time, and people looked to Mary Heyer to be uh, someone for guidance, I guess you could say. So she started to report on the UFOs. She would kind of take these reports. Everything unusual going on in the town would eventually become filtered through Mary Heyer. Uh, shortly after Mothman is, is spotted, what happens is there's kind of an outbreak of UFO uh, sightings. A lot of the uh, people I spoke to out there uh, who were out there at that time were quick to kind of tell me that, you know, Mothman always gets all the headlines. But there were far more UFO sightings than there were Mothman sightings. You know, that uh, the UFO sightings occurred in that area at that time were double or triple to that of the, the sightings of the creature. Um, people would see orbs, daylight disks, craft, you know, just a lot of uh, variations of unidentified flying objects. And, of course, what people started to do was associate the two. Someone would see a UFO over their house, and then two days later, the Mothman would be spotted, you know, a block away. So people started to make a correlation between these unidentified flying objects and the Mothman. And I think that's really where the idea of this thing possibly being from another world, you know, another dimension started to come in. The sci-fi elements of the Mothman, I think, really didn't start uh, to, to take shape until these UFOs started to be uh, witnessed alongside uh, the Mothman sightings. And in January 1967, a couple months after these sightings begin of Mothman and the UFO sightings, uh, Mary's approached by a what she described as a small Oriental man, which was a very strange encounter. Yeah, you know, what happens with this story, when Mothman really kind of takes off, what happens is different things start to go on that just seem to trump each other. Where you think, you know, okay, a six-foot flying monster with wings and red eyes you know, it's not going to get worse than that. But then someone sees a daylight disc, a full craft, you know, landing in a schoolyard. And then you say, all right, well, it can't get weirder than that. And then it does. You know, the, you know, the woman investing on, investigating all this stuff, reporting on all this stuff, starts reporting uh, things that are happening to her. I mean, one of them being the one you mentioned where basically she used to work out of the local courthouse there. And very late at night, uh, strange person basically uh i guess kind of a like a miniature man in black i mean he's a very small person comes in asks a lot of weird questions about the things she's reporting on the lights that our people were reporting you know and then uh, he, the guy steals a pen off her desk runs out of her office screaming and laughing and it's just you know the the, the way it's reported is just that there's just something wrong with the person you know mm -hmm. there's just something unnatural about that experience for Mary, that, you know, the, it's, it's these things, it's just your instincts, I think, from what I, 
a lot of people I've talked to, it was just the instinctive, you know, this isn't right. You know, they started seeing men in black and just weird people around town. We touched on this earlier that, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but it's a town where everyone knows everyone. So an outsider sticks out quite obviously, and especially at that time. You know, there are people who just didn't dress the way people in that town were dressing and that were kind of just sticking out. They were clearly not from there, and they would do things like, you know, they would order Jello at a restaurant and then not know how to eat it, or they would eat it with their hands when they've got silverware there. You know, the weird things would happen. And, and I, I always found it fascinating, really, because it just, I mean, if you're trying to make this stuff up, I, I, I wouldn't even think of something like that to even make it up. Because you just you can't make stuff like that up. It's just bizarre and weird. But men in black, little weird men stealing pens, not knowing how to eat jello, talking backwards, you know, knowing where things are in town that, you know, people, you know, they would just know certain parts of where people lived or they would have information that, you know, people kind of got taken aback by of like, you know, who is this stranger from our town? How does he know this stuff? And also, I mean, there was the kind of the traditional, someone would see a UFO, government people, men in black, if you want to call them, would show up at their house and, and, and basically investigate, take notes and tell them not to talk about what they had seen. So that, that leads us right into one of the more, uh, the stranger components, not that any of this is not strange, <laughs> but the, the Derenberger case, the, the, the Woody Derenberger case. I mean, talk about encounters and, and a story. Yeah. I mean, I, get, I think just talking about this, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, uh, you know, just when you think it can't get any worse. I mean, this is going on for a year now. I mean, this is, this is every night in this town happening for an entire year. I mean, it got to be to the point where the UFOs, the weird creatures, men in black, they were, they were spotted so frequently that people stopped going to the movies. They'd go up to certain parts of a ridge or a mountainside and just watch UFOs all night. I mean, that, it became like a, a current event out there. And so it just keeps getting uh, more and more weird. It keeps escalating. And probably, I guess, the pinnacle of it is uh, a couple miles North of Point Pleasant is a town called Parkersburg, and there's a man named uh, Woodrow Derenberger, who's just an average guy, sewing machine salesman, you know, very reputable. Everybody knows him, again, small town, and, and one day he just comes out and, and tells a story of how one night, driving home, UFO flies over his truck, stops in the middle of the road, uh, an entity comes out of the craft, and has a full-fledged conversation with the guy through telepathy. And this is just the next chapter of the, the bizarre things that are associated with Mothman. And the, and, the, and the entity says his name is Indrid Cold? Yes. Uh, I mean, so that's, just, he, that's just bizarre in itself, but that's, that's what he's, he calls himself. It is. It's weird. His name is Indrid Cold, and um, basically this guy, Woody Derenberger, um, establishes a, a full-on friendship relationship with this guy to where they're meeting, you know, on a regular basis that, you know, and, and there's people substantiating his story. He'll, he'll, you know, he reported, you know, to uh, the local authorities, you know, this craft went over my car at this time, and there was a conversation that was held between me and this extraterrestrial. And then you have five people corroborate his story and, and, and have it fit. And, and, and at that time, the United States government, the Air Force, took him very, very seriously. So it wasn't just some guy spinning yarns and no one was listening or believing him. I mean, 
his credibility in the town was already established. So those people already kind of, you know, they didn't question what was going on. It was weird, but people were starting to see these things, too, around him. But, again, even outsiders, I mean, there are uh, documents that I looked at uh, from the, the Air Force where they took it very seriously. I, I believe they even, you know, brought him down to, like, NASA at some point for more investigation or to, to talk to him more about his encounters. So there was a lot of people that took this very wild, strange story, you know, very seriously. Uh, and there were, there were documents and kind of evidence to kind of substantiate all of this bizarre uh, activity, but I guess it, it happened. You know, Matt, from a, a filmmaker perspective, and, and um, this is not an easy sell. You know, the, this... This film, uh, you know, for there's so much going on with this story. How did you you produced it? But how how did you pull together funding for this? How did you convince people that you know what this is a story that needs to be told um, because there's a lot going on here and it, it may not be a, a natural sell for for a film. Yeah, it's very bizarre. Um, I mean, you know, funding was all through independent sources. Uh, it was it was actually you know not that. There wasn't a giant budget for this film. There's a very small crew. Um, you know, the, the thing is, what, what we did is we, we heard about this story. We read about it. We went out, we went out uh, for about a couple of days just to kind of see the town, feel it out, see what it was going to be like. And honestly, we didn't plan on shooting this film for a while. It was kind of just like this idea, like, well, maybe we'll do a film about this story. Maybe not. You know, we were kind of just blowing it over. But then a few things just kind of fell into place, actually, to where... You know, we, we got some funding for it. Um, uh, we got some opportunities to where, you know, we basically got uh, some equipment donated. And it just, we, we started to realize, all right, you know, we could do this now. And one thing that, you know, I did recognize at that time is, you know, a lot of the people that were very close to this event, you know, they weren't getting any younger. That, you know, if I waited five years to do this film, uh, you know, some of the people that are crucial to the story, might not be with us anymore, and it was kind of like a now or never. Like, I knew that if we were going to do something, we had to kind of do it quick to really kind of talk to and investigate the people that were close to this. I mean, it's true. I mean, actually, since we shot this film and released it, I mean, there are three people in the film that have unfortunately passed away that are no longer with us. That You know, if we would have waited longer, there's three major people that you know, we wouldn't have heard their story uh, or they wouldn't have been a part of the film. So it was about timing for us. We really wanted to kind of put this together quick we knew it was kind of important to hear these people's story the film is eyes of the mothman we're talking with matt Pulowski, the writer producer and director we have to take a break we've got a few more minutes with you matt and we appreciate you hanging on for this long but this is a great story it's a great uh, film it's a great documentary we want to continue to talk about it you're listening to taps paramagazine radio on cny talk radio Taps Para Magazine Radio continues on CNY Talk Radio. I'm JV with Aaron Sagers and Stacy Jones as we uh, get ready to wrap up our discussion with Matt Pulowski, writer, producer, director of the film Eyes of the Mothman. Matt, I, I want to thank you again for uh, spending so much time with us today. And we, we definitely have to bring you back uh, for future projects. Um, but, you know, finally, uh, about the Mothman, you know, a, a story that seems to leave an imprint on so many people. Uh, I can't help but wonder, how has it impacted you? I mean, have you felt the influence of the Mothman in your in your life, and you go back to New York, and is the Mothman following you back there, or what's going on? 
You know, it's weird. It definitely, uh, this project has had a, a lot of influence on my life, actually. It's shocking in, in a lot of different ways, you know, for good and for bad. I mean, there, it becomes part of what we talked about earlier where, you know, at what point is, is this coincidence? At what point is it not? You know, these little strange things that happen. I mean, um, there are a lot of very positive, good things I got out of this project. I met a lot of great people in West Virginia. It opened up a lot of doors for us. Uh, you know, we had a great experience shooting this film there. It's led to some future projects that we plan on bringing back to that community and working with them again. Uh, but then you have kind of, there are some weird things that have gone on, too, that, you know, uh, it just, they're hard to explain. But, I mean, you know, even when we, when we finished this film, I was sick. The film was delayed for about eight months to a year. I, uh, as soon as we got back from shooting this, I got a really bad pneumonia. And, again, it's like you might say, okay, it's coincidence. And what would happen, though, is I would go to the doctor. I was just really sick. And then after month three, after month four of being sick, 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 where you can't get out of bed, you know, the doctor just has, says, you know, I have no idea what's wrong with you. I don't know why you're not getting better, but you're, you know, you still have a pneumonia. And, uh, you know, you, I remember thinking back then, you know, a lot of people take the cornstalk curse very serious. When we were out there, people would warn us, don't mess with this, you know, do not film this, do not investigate this, bad things are going to happen. And, you know, again, I guess, you know, the one person will say you're reading too much into it, another will say you're not. But I remember, you know, you hit month six of being in a pneumonia after filming a movie about curses and weird things, and you start to go like, all right, when is this going to be over? <laughs> like, when am I going to get better and be able to go back to work? And what's the deal with this? You know, eventually I got better, but these, these little weird things have happening. I mean, just to tell you real, you know, two quick other little stories, again, coincidence or not, when we finished filming, you know, uh, the Cornstalk segment, uh, we had just finished filming that part of the story. You know, we filmed at his monument where his remains uh, sit today. And, you know, again, this is after weeks of people tell, you know, telling us, you know, really be respectful about this. You know, don't mess with this. If you're going to do his story, do it right. You know, or just bad things happen to people that mess with this. So it, I'm a very respectful type person. After we, I was really important for me to tell his story as it was and not make it a hokey, you know, silly thing. So I tried to represent it as a very historical kind of look back on what happened to that person. And, uh, you know, right after... We're done filming. We're at his grave, and I'm the only person there. And, and I, I say to him, I say, well, you know, kind of just casually, well, you know, Cornstalk, hopefully we did your story justice. You know, hopefully we'll, we'll portray you the right way. And I walk away from his grave, and I walk over to the Ohio River, uh, which is a very, very big river. And, again, I'm the only person there. And, and as soon as I get to the river, I see this thing floating down, coming right towards me. And it's a corn stalk. There's a huh. corn stalk in the river that just floats right by me. And I'm very, I'm very big into signs and symbolism. And, again, someone might say, like, oh, well, that's just a silly coincidence. But, you know, in my mind, it's like, okay, I say that, I walk through the river, and here's this thing that floats by. You know, there's not 10 of them. There's not 20 of them. It's not like a cornfield up, you know, up north got washed away, and here comes all this debris. It's like one single corn stalk floats by in the river, right at my feet, right after I say that, you know. So, I, again, I, I try to have a 50-50 kind of approach to things where I go, okay, you know, don't read too much into things. But at the same time, I say, what's the probability that, you know, I say that and walk over and then this thing goes by? I mean, that's a little more of a, you know, I guess loosely kind of coincidence type thing. But um, well, uh, the, weird, the weirdest thing that's happened is 
a week after our film gets released, uh, you know, a lot of Mothman witnesses, uh, one of the attributes that happens, you see the Mothman, you get pink eye. People got sunburns. People had physical reactions to seeing the Mothman. A week after our film got released in February, I get pink eye in both eyes, and I still have it today. I, I can't get rid of it. I've, I've had conjunctivitis in both of my eyes for over a month now. I've been to the doctor. I'm going back again tomorrow. And, again, you just start to go, like, all right, I haven't had pink eye since I was 16. I'm 31, <laughs> you know. So it, it is now in the, the eyes of the Mothman director, writer, and producer. And, and you know, just interesting, you know, as, as we wrap up this segment, it's, I, I think all of us here can agree that uh, you're, you're telling a story that a lot of people tell when they have that paranormal experience, that this is going to sound crazy, but right. let me tell you this story. Matt, right. we, we want to we thank you. We're just simply out of time now, but we want to thank you for joining us and hope you'll come back um, at a point when you have another project to talk about. Once again, where can people get information about the film? Anyone who's interested in the film can go to eyesofthemothman.com. Uh, it's also available pretty much anywhere, uh, any retailer, uh, Amazon.com, Best Buy, Walmart's, Targets. Uh, people can try to look for it in your local store. If it's not there, you can always get it online. Uh, it's, pretty, uh, it's out there uh, pretty well right now, so it should be pretty easy for people to find. Well, thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to TAPS Paramagazine Radio on CNY Talk Radio.